Well, friends, our passage for this morning uh, is found on page 961. Uh, if you're using a church Bible, a pew Bible, it's taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, and this morning we are in chapter 15. That's the big number 15 on the page, and we are in verse 1. That's the little number 1, and it will help me, and hopefully you considerably, uh, if you could find it and turn to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 1. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word. I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, it would be of no surprise to you uh, that at the thought of preaching at university, uh, Baptist Church sent me back to uh, just over 20 years ago now, and to my own time at university, and to memorable days there, and to all the fascinating uh, people that I met. And in particular, I thought back to the time in my first year when I met Sloth. And by that, I don't mean that I finally hit the point of giving up on education. I mean that I literally met Sloth. Now, his real name, I think, was Jamie. But to everyone else in our freshman halls, he was sloth, sloth by name, sloth by nature, for sloth never seemingly left our halls. We never saw him in class, never saw him in the library. We often saw him with a pint of beer in his hand, celebrating various rugby wins. But that was the only time we ever saw sloth, not sprawled out on the common room couch. Indeed, for the whole of the first year, the college experience seemed to pass Sloth by from that very couch. But as a result, Sloth was one of the most regular attendees at our Hall Group Christian Union meeting. For as a Hall Group Christian Union, uh, we'd often put on talks entitled something like, What is Grace? or Debates on the Truth of Christianity. And because we'd host them in the common room, we'd always host Sloth. Or there Sloth would be on his couch, fast asleep, 
as God's grace was preached. Sloth was one of the most memorable characters of my freshman year at university. But one far more memorable character was Andy. For Andy was my best friend in my uh, freshman year, and Andy, well, he was the very opposite of sloth. For active Andy had it all, academic prowess, athletic build, affluent Christian parents, aunt with a, with a villa in Barcelona that we would often frequent. Andy was a summa cum laude sports science major. And if Andy wasn't in the gym, he was in the library. Moreover, as a result, Andy didn't sleep through any, any talks about God's grace. Now, Andy would often organize them for people just like Sloth. For Andy was a passionate evangelist. And so someone who became the evangelism secretary of the whole university-wide Christian union uh, by the time we reached our senior year. However, as our college days ebbed away, and as the real world beckoned, Andy was suddenly not seen at the Christian Union or at church, nor was he even seen at the gospel events that he had planned. In fact, the next time I saw Andy was over a year later, just outside another university campus. And the days leading up to our meeting together had been a fantastic ones. I'd been preaching to some students about God's grace with a number of other postgraduates, and, and many had received the gospel that we preached. Indeed, I vividly recall walking across that university campus, that spring night, the sun setting on a wonderful week of evangelism, and my excitement about God's grace being so high. But when I met Andy late on that Friday night, not at any gospel event, but in a shadowy pub, my fears were confirmed. Well, Andy was now earning a ton of money and was just days away from marrying his unbelieving atheist girlfriend. And as I reminded my dear friend of the gospel, which we had both seemingly trusted, Andy told me that on the contrary, he, quote, liked Jesus, but never really believed in God's grace. And he was no longer standing on the truth. Andy was no longer holding fast. Seemingly, Andy had believed in vain. Well, this morning, in a sense, we join the Apostle Paul in a similar situation to me then. For Paul, at the time of writing, was happy, full of gospel encouragement, and yet at the same time, clearly heartbroken at the thought of old gospel partners believing in vain. For Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. And it was springtime in Ephesus when Paul wrote, and, and Paul had enjoyed a really fruitful ministry there. But Paul was also still deeply concerned about his brothers in Corinth 200 miles away. For the Corinthian church, if you know anything about this letter, was an utter mess. Because seemingly, just like Andy, the Corinthians had begun to fall in love with the world. For Christianity was not successful and prosperous enough, not sexually permissive enough, not, not strikingly powerful enough. And as a result, Paul writes a letter which addresses all of those issues. But as Paul concludes his letter here, in this penultimate chapter, he gets to the most worrying aspect of their behavior. For could they actually do, verse 2, an Andy? Could they do an Andy? 
could they no longer be standing on God's grace? Have they believed in vain? Accordingly, point one this morning, if you are a note taker, grace in vain, question mark. Grace in vain, question mark. Let's reread verses 1 and 2 together. Now, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Can you see, we're not actually in a sloth situation here. Because look again at verse 1. You, Corinthians, you, you received the gospel. And so in a sense, the message of God's grace, which Paul had preached to them in verse 1, was not in vain because they heard it, they listened to it. You know, friends, the first stumbling block to the gospel is not actually sin or secularism or sexual license or more stuff. It is sloth. It is the inability or the refusal to bother to listen. God's grace is is in vain when people do a sloth. When they come regularly to the place where the gospel is preached and yet they sleep through that glorious news. And so this morning, just as we begin, let me ask you honestly, might that be you? Might it be you? Are you metaphorically a sloth on the couch as the message of grace is preached week in, week out? Children in this room, teenagers here, could that be you? For this message of grace in Jesus Christ that you hear Sunday after Sunday, that this message is not just for mum and dad, it's for you. So don't just stare off always during the singing or snooze your way through the scripture readings or sketch your way through the sermon. You know, at my home church at Edgefield, I love receiving those those portraits that the the children often do for me when I'm preaching there. Uh, Normally a picture of an egg with a British flag behind it. (laughs) And I'm likewise not seeking to ban doodling in the sermon today. But children, please don't be like my teenage friend Sloth. Listen to the gospel preached. Receive it for yourself. Stand on it yourself. Hold fast to it yourself. Because mum and dad, they do lots of things for you. But they can't believe God's grace for you. Don't let all these sermons that you hear be in vain. Don't be like sloth. You've had the great privilege of hearing the word, whether you've wanted to be here or not. You've sat here every Sunday to be a grown-up and wake up and stand on the word for yourself. If you want to know how to do that, find me afterwards. Talk to Pastor Brad. Even better, talk with one of your parents. However, however, as I said, when it came to Corinth, God's grace was not in vain in that sense. Because the Corinthians had received the word. They had not done a sloth. But God's grace was potentially in vain because some were in danger of doing an andy. For verse 2, if you hold fast to the word. In short, Paul asks, are you in danger of losing God's grace because you have become absolutely obsessed with the world? Indeed, to employ Jesus' famous warning, parable in Mark chapter 4, are you in danger of being the soil amongst the thorns where the word was sown and the word was heard and yet Mark 19 and yet the cares of this world and the desires for other things came in and choked the word. 
The Corinthians were being choked, you see, by the things. Like Andy, they still liked Jesus, but he was not Lord. Because they had begun to crown other things. That the good news was essentially Jesus plus. Jesus plus something else impressive in the world's eyes. Jesus plus uh, scholastic sermons, chapter 2. Jesus plus uh, sexual self-indulgence, chapter 5. Jesus plus social snobbery, that's chapter 11. Jesus plus spiritual spectaculars, that's chapter 14. And because of their Jesus plus mentality, because they had fallen in love with the world, they were in danger of believing in vain. And friends, let me tell you that that is what the evil one longs for. If he can't get us to throw away Christ completely, then Satan will try to get us to hold something else more tightly until our grip on grace is loosened and mere belief in Jesus' lordship becomes vanity. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, puts it like this. As he pretends to be an experienced devil, advising a younger devil on how to get a Christian to believe in vain. My dear Wormwood, writes the senior devil, the real trouble about the set of experiences your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but his bond remains mere Christianity. And what we as demons want if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind which I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and psychology. Christianity and the new world order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and the supernatural. Christianity and vegetarianism. If they must be Christians at all, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Substitute for faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Can you see that that was what was happening in Corinth? Popular modern fashions with, with, with Christian colorings. Modern belief and behavior with, with just a splash of Christ. Applauded social passions with, with just a hint of Jesus. That is what this church was holding fast to. And a result... The result was that the main thing, the plain thing, the same thing taught by Paul from day one until now was slowly beginning to slide through their fingers because of a Christianity and mindset. And my friends, for us, it might not be Christianity and faith healing or Christianity and vegetarianism, but what might the Christianity and be for us? Christianity and conservative political reform. Christianity and sexual liberty for all. Christianity and, and social transformation. Christianity and whatever my Twitter tribe says. What sought after fashions might you be substituting for simple faith? What would your friends and family say that you really take your stand on? You're really holding fast to that simple gospel of grace, when you first believed in Jesus as your Savior. The simple word of God preached when you first repented, called Christ your King. 
As Paul reminded the, the Corinthians with tears then, as I reminded Andy 20 years ago, as I remind us all today, verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word. But what was this word? What was this word preached? What was this good news proclaimed by Paul? What must they hold fast to lest they believe in vain? Well, in verse 3, we're given that explanation. 4.1, grace in vain, question mark. That's verses at 1 and 2. Point 2, grace explained. Verses 3 to 8. Point 2 this morning, grace explained. Look down with me to verses 3 to 8. You'll see that, that Paul gives the, the Corinthians a, a little summary here of God's grace. Indeed, as the, the biblical commentators all highlight, this six-verse summary is thought to be one of the earliest Christian creeds that we have. In fact, scholars trace this summary creed here to around just five years after the resurrection. And consequently, these words were actually first coined before any of the Corinthian youth group were born. For these verses cited by Paul's were not new ones. This was the gospel song that was known by heart. This was the chorus that, that reverberated all around the Mediterranean world and was, was turning the whole world upside down. And if we look at it carefully, we see that there are two essential parts to it. Well, firstly, in verse 3, the first explanation of grace that they must hold on to is Christ dying for our sins. That is the first explanation of grace, or rather we might say the first essential of God's grace. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So can you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that, that Jesus did many important things in his life. He was born in miraculous circumstances, and he, and he grew in wisdom and knowledge, and he healed the sick, and he, and he fed the poor, and he challenged the graceless with God's mercy, and he taught the lawless God's ways. But of first importance, of first importance, that which Paul received, and that which Paul received from whom? Well, obviously from Jesus, because that is who appeared to him, that is who taught him. Paul received from Jesus as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. And so the focus of every eyewitness account is his death. Jesus' death, I don't know if you've noticed, makes up a massive part of every single gospel. For that was the very heart of Jesus' ministry. Jesus himself said, Mark 10.45, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came as the king. He was clearly Lord over all, but he did not pursue a chair of power, but rather a cross of penalty. Because in his own words, he came to serve. He came to do the job of a waiter. And the main meal that he served, that was his life. His life was given up as a ransom. He died for our sins. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father sent his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of you and me. That is the of first importance 
first essential of God's grace that we must hold on to. A few Father's Days ago now, I got my father a book. We both like reading. And it was the autobiography of one of our favorite English comedians, um, a chap named Bob Mortimer. And at one stage in Mortimer's uh, biography, his autobiography, Mortimer vividly describes the moment in his life when he says he came to understand and to hold on to grace. For when he was just eight years old, uh, Mortimer was left alone in his house with a gift from his parents, a box of fireworks. And his own beautifully humorous prose, this is what happened next. I kept reading the alluring box. And while looking at all the descriptions on the packet of sparklers, I noticed that it contained the warning not suitable for indoor use. But I managed to convince myself that this really meant that they were suitable for indoor use, but that you just needed to be very careful. Basically, I thought that the warning was there because people do use them indoors, but the firework makers didn't want to take responsibility. And so I took a match off the mantelpiece and I lit a sparkler. Needless to say, it was a big mistake. For a cascade of sparks fell down into the open box of fireworks, and the contents started to fizzle and ignite. And panicking, I grabbed the whole box of fireworks and I, and I threw them into the kitchen. And I watched in horror as fireworks exploded across the floor and spun around the lino rug and flew at the windows like trapped flies. I was helpless and I just stood there. The kitchen was left with huge scorch marks everywhere. My heart was pounding. If my mother found the kitchen in this state, I would be murdered. And so I set to work to try and clean up the mess. I knew that I was fighting a losing battle, but the better I thought I could make it look, the less trouble I would get into. And so I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I scrubbed. But after a while, I suddenly became aware of strange noises in the living room. And when I walked back in, I was met with a wall of flames. I'd obviously dropped a firework in there. And since 1960s nylon and soft foam furnishings are only slightly more fire retardant than petrol, the whole room was ablaze. I quickly ran outside to my next door neighbor, Miss Best, an elderly spinster, and I banged furiously on her door. My house is on fire. My house is on fire, I shouted as an eight-year-old. And she replied, you know what? I thought it was. <laughs> Fireman arrived shortly afterwards. But by this time, dense black smoke was gushing out of the front door and the windows where the glass was smashed open. The house was a write-off. But what I remember most was my mother arriving home and getting out of her car opposite our house. She was clearly looking for me, and when she spotted me, she ran over and gave me a massive motherly hug. And friends, that is somewhat of a picture of our sin that we see in the Bible. And so in Mortimer's story, we see something of verse 3. For in it, we recognize how our sin works. As we recognize that if we ignore the maker's good instructions, if we think he is out to spoil our fun, we create a mess. And in his illustration, we feel something, the regret of our sin, as we light the match of desire, 
and then try to deal with all the consequences as often we try to scrub and scrub and scrub with tears, hoping that the better we can make it look, the less trouble we can get into. And in his illustration, I guess we see something of the magnitude of our sin as we realize that sin often spreads, that the small sparks of desire often create infernos until we see that our lives are a write-off, certainly no longer inhabitable for any heavenly father. But in his story, despite what Mortimer says, I don't think we really see the grace of verse 3. Now, of course, his mother was gracious to him. She sought after him, she bent down to him, she gave him a hug at the height of his distress. And likewise, when Christ comes to us, he, he comes seeking us and he, and he bends down at the height of our own distress and, and hugs those who are mortified by their sin. But that is not God's grace in full. That is not the depth of grace that we see in verse 3. For God's grace in Christ is not sin sympathized with, overlooked, and hugged out. God's grace in Christ is sin mourned for and rescued from and paid for and renewed. You see, a more accurate tale of God's grace in Christ would have been if mortal woman was suffocating in that fire that he created. And if elderly Miss Bess next door had acted and she had burst in and rescued him from the flames, and yet before Miss Bess died through her rescue of him, she gave Mortimer the keys of her untarnished home and said with her dying breath, live in my house with your mother and father, the house is of the same value and it is now yours, there are no stains in my kitchen and there are no fires in my living room. Friends, that is a fuller picture of grace. God's grace in verse 3 and what it means that Christ died for our sins. For his death was not just an expression of sympathy for our sins. His death is not a picture of his, of, of his love despite our sins. His death was an act of rescue and repayment and renewal because of our sins. He died for our sins. His death means that we are rescued wonderfully from God's judgment when he returns home at the end. His death means that, that the written off house is paid for, for we have been given a new home, the very life of Christ, his perfect, untarnished, unblemished home of righteousness that we may dwell with a God who now has no reason to be angry with his disobedient children. And so, my friend, if you're here, and maybe you're not a Christian, that is what you must receive. That's what you must hold on to. Christ beautifully died for your sins. Indeed, there is nothing more than the people here would long for, for you, that you would receive that grace and that you would stand in it and that you would hold on to it such that your confidence when you meet your, your perfect heavenly father, would not be because you've tried hard enough to remove those stains through religious effort or morality or church attendance, but your confidence when your perfect heavenly father returns home was in the immovable fact, that fact rooted in history, that Christ has died 
for your sins and so rescued you from God's coming wrath for he has provided a new and safe dwelling place for you. First essential of grace, that which we must hold on to, that we must keep front and center is Christ died for our sins. But the second, the second rock-solid essential of grace, which is really the, the kind of the heartbeat of this chapter, if you want to read uh, the rest when you get home, is that verse 4, Jesus was raised. For as you can see from verse 12, some in the church in Corinth were, say, were saying that, that there was no resurrection. And Paul says, verse 14, if you think that, then, then your faith is in vain. It really is in vain. Now, if you go home and you read the rest of this chapter, you'll see why rejecting that truth shipwrecks the the Christian faith. But for today, see that Paul highlights not the implications of not holding on to the resurrection, but rather the irrationality, the irrationality of not holding on, holding fast to the resurrection. For Paul says that, that the message of grace I delivered to you can be believed, it can be stood on, it can be held on to because it's true. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he gives four pieces of evidence for that. I wonder if you can spot them. First one, as we've already looked at in verse 3, is that Jesus died. Jesus was able to to rise because he died first, and so Jesus did not swoon at his death, as liberal academics of the 19th century thought. Nobody fainted during a crucifixion, and then wandered off into the crowd looking for a band-aid. And Jesus' body was not switched at death, as Muslims believe. The Romans knew what they were doing. These people were trained executioners. Numerous non-Christian sources all tell us that Jesus died. We know that he was able to rise because Jesus died first. And likewise, secondly, verse 4, he was buried. His burial was the ultimate verification that, that Jesus truly had died. He was able to rise not only because he died, but, but, but because he was laid in the realm of the dead. And thirdly... We know that the resurrection was true such that we can stand on it, hold fast to it, because it was all part of God's plan. Can you see that in verse 4? For in the same way, his dying, verse 3, was in accordance with the Scriptures, so his rising, verse 4, was in accordance with the Scriptures. In short, we can hold fast to God's grace because the resurrection was no plan B. Jesus didn't tell his disciples, listen, if I end up dying amid social transformation, then let's just plan on on saying that I'm not really dead because that will help aid the legacy of my moral message. No. Jesus said, Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day must be raised. And this is not just in accordance with Jesus, did he note that? This is in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. The Psalm 16 reminds us, God's promised king will say, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. Jesus really died so that he could beat death. Jesus really was buried so that he could show that, that victory from death. Jesus really fulfilled the scriptures, he really rose. And for some of you, for some of you here this week who have sadly come face to face with death, what wonderful, rock-solid confidence 
and assurance you may have in that truth in God's plans. But, but also finally, see that you can hold fast to God's grace. We can stand on the truth of the resurrection, live in that glorious hope in spite of grief because he appeared for all to see. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Look down with me to verse 5. And he appeared to the 12 disciples, verse 5, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, verse 6. Then he appeared to James, his brother, verse 7. Then to all the apostles, a wider group than the 12. And then last of all, says Paul, he appeared to me. Corinthians says, Paul, you can stand. You can hold fast to the essentials of God's grace because it's true. We have eyewitness accounts. This diverse group of people, they saw it and they were willing to die for it. Indeed, I love how the preacher Charlie Screen describes how this diversity of eyewitnesses gave him confidence in his own uh, belief in God's grace. For Screen says this, he says, have you ever thought what kind of evidence it would take for your worst enemy and your best friend to simultaneously believe that you have risen? Because that is what Paul writes here. Jesus' best friend, Peter, and his once worst enemy, Paul, believe because they trust the same evidence. Moreover, he writes, have you ever thought what kind of evidence it would take for you to believe that your own brother rose, that your own brother was God, like James did? It must have taken unquestionable evidence and appearing that they could not deny for them to have all kept believing. And that same eyewitness evidence to that miraculous resurrection of Christ as recorded in history, that, that amazing display of unrivaled power over death is why you and I can keep holding on to. And you know, when I was at university with the likes of Sloth and Andy, that was why many students like me held on. We looked carefully. We looked carefully at the eyewitness sources. And as I said earlier, we put on debates about the truth, the veracity of Christianity. And we debated the proof of the original primary sources and why the apostles would be martyred for a lie. And we argued rationally Rationally, with all the, the Richard Dawkins fans of the day and the new atheism of the early 2000s who said that science shows that people don't rise from the dead. But my fear today is that amongst many students and young people in particular, and particularly in America, if I'm honest, that the historical truth is not really why people hold on to faith or not. For people are not looking for verification for their beliefs, but rather vibes. And for many today, they just hold on to belief if it feels good. Feeling the resurrection vibes, believe it. Friends, without wanting to sound a, a grumpy old man who wants to be back at university, that's foolishness. Vibes will not sustain your faith. It is the historical eyewitness truth by which our faith should stand or fall. It is the evidence 
that should cause you to keep holding on to Jesus who promises to save us from death. Two years ago, my mother suddenly discovered that she had lung cancer and that it spread significantly all over her body. And for a number of weeks, almost months, it was very worrying indeed. But, but wonderfully, a couple of months later, doctors discovered that she had a very, very rare form of cancer that was actually treatable with new drugs from Germany. And these drugs had been proven, uh, amazingly, to, to raise people from such sickness. The evidence was there that people facing certain death lived. And so she trusted the evidence. And she began to take those drugs from Germany. And amazingly, those, those German drugs, they worked. And my mother is still alive today. I saw her a few weeks ago when I was in England. But imagine if my mother had thought, I'm not sure about taking those drugs. Because I'm not sure I'm really feeling the association with those drugs. Because, you know, they're, well, they're made in Germany. And the Germans fought us in two world wars. And they always knock us out of the soccer world cup. Thing, I'll just do whatever English people do. Friends, I hope you'd see that that is absurd. For in serious situations of life and death, veracity trumps vibes. Veracity trumps vibes. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then surely that should change everything, everything that we are holding on to. It doesn't matter how you feel about Christianity. It doesn't particularly matter whether you feel an initial association with Christians who take that medicine of the resurrected Christ in the face of death. It is about looking at the evidence and working out whether it is true and can be trusted. And so as a result, let me encourage you here, if you're not a Christian, or even if you are, not to just leave here analyzing the vibes that you got this morning, whether you felt welcomed or you liked the coffee whether the songs were good or not, whether you could understand the accent of the preacher. Don't just leave here analyzing the vibes you got this morning, but leave here determined to analyze if Jesus' resurrection is true. Come talk to someone that you saw up front afterwards. Talk with a friend that you came with. Go home, and, and don't just take my word for it. Look at the evidence carefully. If you haven't got a Bible, take the one in front of you. It's not stealing. It is yours. Not on staff here, but I trust that's okay. <laughs> because that is the essential message of Christianity. That is of eternal value. That is the summary of the truth of God's grace, which is rock solid enough to stand on. In every season of life, Christ died for our sins and Christ was raised. Don't believe in vain, says Paul. Remember the grace that was explained to you. And finally, we'll close with this quickly. Remember how the grace was proclaimed to you. Point one, grace in vain. Point two, grace explained. And finally, last two verses, grace proclaimed. Point three, grace proclaimed in verses 9 to 11. Paul moves from God's grace explained to the Corinthians to one who proclaimed that grace to them. And so Paul begins by speaking of himself. And by confessing that he, the, that the teacher of grace, was, well, look at verse 9. The teacher of grace was the least 
of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. Now, why would Paul do that? Why would Paul seemingly underplay his reliability at a time when he wants them to trust and to hold fast to the grace that he preached to them? Well, the reason is because his life, his leastness, proclaimed what the God's grace was all about. Indeed, he effectively says that in verse 10, doesn't he? He says, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, Paul says, if you want to hold on to that grace which was proclaimed to you, have a look at the one who proclaimed it. For I'm the least of all the proclaimers of that grace. In fact, I'm the worst, the very worst because I persecuted other proclaimers. And under the letter, Paul writes just that. First Timothy, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy, God's grace, for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and his example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul proclaims God's grace by reminding them that he was nothing short of a malicious modern religious terrorist, one who stirred up crowds against the proclaimers of grace those who said that Christ died for our sins, those that said that he was raised, Paul would ensure that those people would be pelted with rocks until they bled to death on the streets. Friends, there was no better proclamation of God's grace than who Paul was. And so can you see, can you see that God not only accepts, but powerfully uses the least, the unworthy, the persecutor, to proclaim his grace. And maybe someone here just needs to be reminded of that this morning. Maybe you sit here right now and you're named after a sin, like my friend Sloth. Maybe you're so characterized by some kind of evil that, that people have even renamed you by it and you feel like the least. Maybe you sit here this morning and you're like Andy. You've been given everything by God. Academic prowess, athletic build, affluent Christian parents, aunt with a villa in Barcelona, and you threw it all away at college. You threw it all away down the street for the sake of the world. You rejected God's grace that was preached to you when you were growing up, and so you feel like the least. Maybe you sit here now and metaphorically, you feel like Bob Mortimer, aged eight. You didn't read the maker's instructions. You lit the match of desire, and you have lived with the consequences. And you've tried to scrub, to scrub and scrub and scrub those stains away. Yet you know that you have burnt your house down, such that your life has become uninhabitable even to you. And you feel that the remaining years that you have, well, they're just a write-off. And you feel like the least. Maybe someone here is sitting here and you actually feel like the Apostle Paul. You genuinely think that nobody 
has committed a sin like you. You really are the very least in this room right now. Friends, whoever you are, can you see that that God's grace here is enough for you? It is enough for you. And not only that, but that you are still able to proclaim that grace. Indeed, particularly able to proclaim that grace. God's grace in Christ, says Paul, could be proclaimed by me because I am the least. Verse 10, his grace towards me was not in vain. And yet, can you also see finally in verse 10 that God's grace to him at the very least was that which caused him to work hard in proclaiming God's grace. Again, middle of verse 10. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any other proclaimer. Can you see what was still spurring Paul on to proclaim God's grace in those years in Ephesus? And yet at the same time, at night probably, to pick up a pen and to write to these, these Corinthians who were in danger of not holding on to God's grace. Paul worked harder than anyone in proclamation because he meditated on God's grace through his own leastness. According, friends, if we're, if we're finding it hard at present to work hard to proclaim, if we're struggling to tell our, our friends and neighbors and our colleagues the gospel. Perhaps if we're quite weary in Christian ministry, we haven't proclaimed God's grace much since university days. Or might it be, could it be, that one of the reasons is that we're no longer meditating sufficiently on our own leastness? J.C. Ryle wrote this. Many are willing to risk all consequences in proclaiming their affection to their Savior, but, but a low and feeble sense of sin will always produce a low and feeble sense of salvation. A slight sense of debt to God will always be attended by a slight sense of what we owe for our redemption. Friends, God's grace reflected upon causes hard work in proclamation. And so for those of us finding Proclaiming God's grace hard, that that is your homework. Reflect upon your own leastness this week. But maybe that's not you. In fact, maybe you're not struggling at all with that. And maybe you're still in those heady evangelistic days of university and you're, you're still witnessing to your neighbors and your colleagues. Well, rejoice like Paul because you know what? If you're still doing that, even your desire to proclaim grace, well, that's God's grace too. For verse 10, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace was proclaimed through his leastness. And so motivated by that grace, he was to proclaim grace. Not like some kind of some everlasting circular waterfall washing over Paul again and again and again. God's grace is proclaimed through his leastness. And then God's grace causes him to proclaim God's grace. And yet even his proclamation is God's grace with him. Friends, what a gracious God we have. What a gracious God we have. What a blessing to be recipients of God's amazing grace. What a grace to not have believed in vain. 
but to have had it explained again today that we might proclaim it tomorrow. Friends, we're going to sing of that in a moment in an amazing grace that we might help one another keep holding on the beautiful, the preciousness of God's grace. Let's pray first. Let's pray.